0: Doctrine of God. The last time we were together in this series, we looked at the God who upholds uh, the doctrine of God's providence. That uh, through God's interaction with this world, He hasn't just the idea of deism is that God has created this world and He's He's spun it up, He's made the laws of nature, and now He's just let things coast and let things go. But that's not a biblical view. The Christian God, the God of the Scriptures, the true God, the one true God. Sustains and upholds everything in creation. We call this providence. And last time we looked at God's upholding and his sustaining of everything in nature. Everything in creation. Now as we consider God's providence and how he upholds and sustains creation. Uh, to many this is not a, not a controversial statement. Uh, we have no problem embracing that God sustains. That God sends you know, the wind and the rain. That he has power over these storms and um, things in nature. We have no problem understanding that God um, controls the rain and, and storms and drought, that he governs all aspects of nature and he uses them and directs them to accomplish his perfect purposes. Now, what is more controversial and less readily accepted, especially in Christendom today, is that God directs and upholds every single human action that he is guiding and directing human history uh, in, its, in its broadest schemes, the story of redemption, and also its finest details, that God is behind that. Uh, that is a controversial statement, and many today feel very uncomfortable embracing a God that is that powerful and that it, that is that involved and pervasive in our world today. But that's what we're going to look at here tonight, how God upholds and how he directs the course of human history um, and how he how he influences and how he how he controls nations and down even to individuals. Okay, that's what I want to demonstrate tonight. We're going to go through a variety of scriptures to show how God upholds and directs human history. Um, In fact, every single human action happens under the sovereign control of God himself. There's we know that there's no rogue storms Or planets or stars or even particles that are beyond God's control. And the same thing with human beings and their actions. There is nobody outside of God's control who can thwart his will or his purposes. So what we're going to do tonight, there's three main headings we're going to cover uh, in your handout. And then we're going to tackle some objections because when this topic comes up, um, there's there's things coming to your mind, well, how can that be? How does that relate to this and to that? So we're going to handle some object, objections, and then we're going to close with some implications. That's where we're going. So first, uh, the first point in your handout, right after it says God upholds and directs human history, we know that God upholds and directs nations. Okay, we're going to see in the scriptures how God upholds and how he directs nations. Job 12.23 says this, God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. God does that. Psalm 22:28 says for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Not just Israel, he rules over the nations. They're his. Acts 17:26 and he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the profession of, at that time, the most powerful empire in the world. No one can thwart God's purposes or plans, neither in heaven in heaven nor on earth. So we see from Scripture that God upholds and He directs nations. The second thing we're going to see, God upholds His people, okay? And we talk about, we talk about nations, okay? That's not, not too controversial. We don't mind if, if we're talking about a corporate group of people that God is directing and guiding. Uh, God upholding His people is the next one we're going to look at. The first point under God upholds His people is that God directs and upholds our salvation, He directs and he upholds our salvation. Many different passages we can look at here, but Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. An exhaustive statement. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, and including in these all things that he's he's working according to the counsel of his will includes predestination, and includes this inheritance that we have obtained. That was God's direction, God's will. Psalm 65, 4 says this, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. God directs and he upholds our salvation. Romans 9, 16, 18, what about our, our efforts, he says in Romans nine sixteen. so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we're gonna look at this passage in a little bit in more detail. And verse 18 says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We have to um, understand that these, script, these passages are in scripture and they must be part of our theology and it's here, it's indicating that God directs and upholds our salvation. First Thessalonians five nine says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Destined to salvation. Okay, now, before we look at the next passage, not only do we recognize that God directs and appoints those to be saved, but he also directs and upholds our salvation in that, Not only does God bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ, he keeps us in Christ, such that we are not cast away, such that we do not lose our salvation, so that we not lose regeneration, the Holy Spirit that indwells within us. Someone cannot be unborn again. Once you are born from above, you are a new creature. You have a permanent standing before God, and that's because of his upholding power. Now look at these verses here. John 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In fact, we know that Jesus will preserve us. John 10, 27 to 29 says, Jesus, again speaking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The end of Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all all time, and now and forever. Amen. God not only directs our salvation, but he upholds it. He sustains it. He preserves us such that we do not fall away, such that we are not lost. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, not because salvation rests in our hands, but rather because it rests in God's hands. And he will ensure that those who come to him will not be lost. Now, isn't this a delight to your heart to realize that salvation is of the Lord? that from first to last it is of him, that his purpose cannot be thwarted, that those whom he has set his love and affection on will come to him and they will have life and they will not be cast away and they cannot stumble because Christ upholds them and preserves them. These are great and wonderful truths. These are historic truths. The church has held dear to these truths for hundreds and hundreds of years. And of course, they're scriptural truths going all the way back even to the first book of the Bible. These are scriptural truths. God saves from first to last. We read all through the Old Testament that salvation is of the Lord. A repeated refrain that we read in the scriptures. And this is what it means. God directs and upholds salvation. The second thing about how God upholds his people is that God directs and upholds our sanctification. Okay, God directs and upholds our sanctification. Okay? It is God who is working in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. The sanctifying agent that is a work in our life is none other than God Himself through the Holy Spirit. We saw this, this morning in Romans chapter 8, how these things that are happening to us, even great times of suffering and calamity, are, are blessings of God to conform us into the image of Christ. We see that in Romans 8, we see it in Ephesians 1, where we see that God has predestined us, to be a people who are holy and blameless. And he is going to conform us into a holy and blameless people. And God is going to accomplish this. He hasn't just saved us and now left us on our own, but rather he's going to work within us to sanctify us. Does not mean that we're passive in our sanctification or passive in our salvation? We just read... We have to come to him, we hear, we believe the gospel, we desire Christ, we are called to obey and to work out our own salvation. We do those things, we recognize that the primary mover, that the one working in order to enable us, in order to give us desires to do those things, is God himself. That he must act first. That salvation is of the Lord. As 1 John 5 1 says, we believe that Jesus is the Christ because we have been born of God. It's a result of being born again that we express faith and repentance in God. Now, not only that, the third item, sub-item there, he says he directs and upholds everything about our lives. As believers, he directs and upholds everything about our lives. Look at Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus says, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Okay, even sparrows falling to the ground, that's fathers behind that. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than, than many sparrows. Even the, 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 the most um, mundane things you can think about our body, the hairs on our head. God is, he knows that and he cares for us more than he cares for sparrows. And even when a sparrow falls, um, That doesn't fall apart from the Father, and neither do we live apart from the Father. Every detail about our lives is sustained, directed, and upholded by God Himself. The third point I want to show you is that God upholds every action of every human being. Okay, God upholds every action of every human being. This is where we get into some... um, Some objections can begin to be circling in our brain, and we might have heard them from somebody else when we consider that God upholds and sustains every single human being, every single human action. Psalm 139.16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. The Hebrew term there is um, golem. It has to refer to fetus. That's the way you translate it today. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. I was in the womb. It says, In your book were written every one of them, The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Okay, even when we were in our mother's womb, um, God knew the days that were before us. Job 14.5 says this, Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Acts 17.28, In him we live and move and have our being. Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Proverbs 20.24 20, says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can he understand his way? Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Psalm 75.6, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. That is the work of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? That is, everything has come from God. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Proverbs 21, 1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Let's pause there for a second. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, this proverb is so amazing because who's more powerful to the nations than kings? Who, who, who can, can issue commands and edicts and people must obey? It's the king. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it as he wills. And if God directs the king like that, well, what about us? Well, certainly our hearts are in his hands as well, and that's the point. That everything is under the sovereign rule of God. Psalm thirty-four, fourteen and 15 says, From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. As we consider these texts about God's control over all things, objections can come to our mind. That's what we're going to look at now, a few objections. Objections can come to our mind, and perhaps we can hear objections from other people. We've already taken some time previously in this series to address some objections uh, that do come up when we consider the topic of Uh, God and just how much in control He is and just how powerful He is. Like I mentioned in the beginning, to say that God is powerful over all creation. Now we have everyone saying amen to that. And we say God is powerful over everyone's salvation. Now we might have people that think, well, that's, might be going a little bit too far. And we say God is powerful over every single human action. Again, we get more people responding with, I'm not sure if that's true. Because we begin to think in our mind, well, Isn't that just the same as fatalism? Are we then nothing more than robots? What about our free will? What about our volition? What about the choices they make? Are all those things nothing? What about our responsibility before God to obey Him and to worship Him? What about our responsibility to repent and believe the gospel? Is that all for naught? What about evangelism? What about a prayer, prayer? Is that all meaningless? If God is completely in control of all things and He's going to do whatever He wills? Those are things you've heard before. Those are things you've thought of before. So I want to look at a few of those things here tonight as we consider just God's power and how he's in control of human history and some of these objections. First, fatalism. I have a definition for fatalism on, the, on your page, last page of the handout. Fatalism is the idea that our choices don't matter. It doesn't matter what you choose in this life. Your fate has been sealed. That's what fatalism means. Your choices, human choice is irrelevant. Even if you desired something, even if you chose a certain path, it doesn't matter. You're going to end up in that final state that's been um, determined by the stars or whatever. um, Fatalism. That's the whole idea about fatalism. Now, we, we clearly see that the Bible doesn't teach fatalism. And we can see that right off the bat because... There is no example of this in the scriptures of anyone coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to God in repentance and faith and being rejected because, no, that wasn't your fate. You can't come. No, we have scriptures that say, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have eternal life. Christ says, come and drink all you who are thirsty. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Drink of the waters of life and drink them freely. That is the command and the call of the scriptures. And those who come, those who who turn from their sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We recognize that. It's not that people want to come, but fate has finished them and, and they are unable to come, even though they really want to. But God says, no, because your fate has been determined. Your fate has been sealed. We also don't have people who are going to be dragged, kicking and screaming into heaven. We sometimes hear that. People who don't want to go to heaven are going to go to heaven because they're chosen. That's just going to be their fate. No, that is nowhere in scripture. Those people who are saved are people are people who express repentance and who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And who are saved because of their faith. We have Romans 10 It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who, who approaches Christ as Lord in this attitude of worship and of reverence, who denies themselves and take up their cross and fault, they will be saved. That's a promise from Scripture. So our choices make a difference. Those who repent and believe will enter glory. We have the command of Joshua, Joshua 24, choose this day whom you will serve. People's choices made a difference. Our choices make a difference. Fatalism is not biblical. But neither is going the extreme view on the other way by saying our human choices trump God's choices. Our choices, we have creaturely freedom. Our choices cannot thwart the purposes and the plans of God. But certainly God is sustaining and upholding our choices and if someone has expressed faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because God has given them a heart and now they freely make that choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because their heart has been transformed. Look again at Proverbs sixteen nine. I have it on the sheet. Proverbs sixteen nine. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is what I'm this is what I'm trying to say. We we have we have plans. We have volition. We make choices. We make decisions. But it is the Lord who establishes our steps. Okay, we, we can make plans and we can make decisions, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. God does. And God has a plan and a purpose for our tomorrow, whatever that may hold. God is in complete control. And in his wonderful wisdom and sovereignty and power, We have billions of creatures making free choices in this world, according to our own human nature, and we're fulfilling God's purposes exactly. That's how amazing our God is, that he would make us like this way. It also doesn't mean we're robots. Look at fatalism. It also doesn't mean we're robots. How do we know we're not robots? Because scripture tells us we're made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God has made male and female in His image. We are not just mere robots just playing out some kind of drama here um, that, that God is, is using us as, as strings on a puppet. Okay? He has made us in His image. And because we're made in God's image, we have the ability to worship, to love, to make choices, and yet... As he saw this morning in Job 42.2, our choices cannot thwart God's plans or purposes. Not only are we made in his image, we're made responsible. We're created with a duty and we're given commands and we're created to give an account to God. And we're going to stand before him as judge. And so we're responsible for what we do and the choices that we make. We're not just mere robots. We are held accountable before God for the things that we think and do and say. Another reason why we know we're not robots is that we have been loved by God. We have been loved by God. We reflected this morning how God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die in our place so that we can have redemption, that we could have the hope of resurrection and sins forgiven. We are not just mere robots. We are not robots in the eyes of Scripture or in the eyes of God. God has sent His Son to die in our place for our sake, to demonstrate His wonderful love. We are creatures, yes, before our Creator. But we are not robots, and neither is God working in a fatalistic way. God didn't even die for the angels. We read that in Hebrews chapter 2. There's a special place in God's heart for his creatures, his humanity, human race. Okay, so we cannot object to this teaching that God is sovereign over every human action by assuming that if if we ascribe to God's complete control over every human being, then we're ascribing fatalism or that we're mere robots. We see that it's not the case scripturally. And neither can we hold that these teachings mean that we are not responsible for our actions. Again, that would be denying other scriptural truths. What I want to do um, is look at Romans 9. Just for a few minutes. So you don't need to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 9. Sometimes when we get handle some of these objections we can get bogged down in some of the details so i think it's helpful for us just to go to romans 9 look at a few passages there understand what the scriptures are saying and i have i have one point i want to make looking at romans 9 there's so many things that we could look at in this chapter but there's there's one main point that i want to make so when you find romans 9 i'm going to read Verses 10 to 13. Romans 9 verses 10 to 13. It says, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the younger will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. So as we consider this text and as we're going to go further in Romans 9, just consider the language that is used here in these verses. Speaking about election, and what we mean by election is, is a choice. In this case, God's choice. So we see here the language of God's purpose of election in verse 11 might continue. And then it says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That is because of God's sovereign choice, because his will is being accomplished, now, as we consider such ideas, and as we consider the passages we looked at earlier tonight, immediately the objection becomes, it's not fair. Okay, that's the, the first objection that comes to our minds when we think about Romans 9 is, it's not fair. That doesn't sound fair at all. What do you mean? It's like God's purpose of election might stand, and it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. That doesn't sound fair at all. It sounds like our choices don't matter. But that's not what we're talking about here at all. So let's, let's continue in this text to see... How it unfolds. Uh, let's look at verse 14 through 18. Okay, the first objection, it's not fair. We'll continue, 14 to 18. The scriptures say, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He starts off by saying, you're going you're to say it's not fair. This is not just. Okay, and so he anticipates this objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And he continues. For... In all the earth, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so we consider that first objection about it's not fair. It's not fair. Is there injustice on God's part? And what does the Scriptures tell us? This is not anything new. What I'm telling you here, as Paul writes the Romans, this is what God has told Moses. That he's going to have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. And looking back at the Exodus account, he hardens the heart of Pharaoh. He told this to Moses before Moses even went back to ask Pharaoh. God says, Moses, in, in Exodus chapter 4, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go and I will harden his heart so he won't let them go. So that my power may be known among the nations. And we're, we're wondering, how is that fair? Now, when we look at Pharaoh, we see he's making choices. He, he, is, he hardens his own heart. But at the same time, we recognize the scripture is clear here that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And in this case, the purpose that God had raised up Pharaoh was to harden his heart so that he might show his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what the scriptures say then the second objection comes to our mind. That doesn't sound fair as a first objection. The second objection that comes up is, how can we then be responsible? Humans cannot be responsible. Or humans are not responsible. If God shows mercy on whom we have mercy and harden him he wills, then how can we be held responsible or accountable before God? Which is the next objection that Romans 9 handles. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can he hold us accountable? How can he hold us responsible? How can he find fault within us? Who can resist his will? That's the second objection that is dealt with in this text. Now let's look how it's answered. Verse 20 to 24. But, scriptures say, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, in this text, there are many people who try to do exegetical gymnastics to try to evade the clear meaning of this text. But the response that Paul levels is clear. Who are we to answer back to God? The same response that we had in the book of Job. Who are you, Job, to answer back to God? He is all wise, He is all powerful. He is all good. He is all loving. Who are you as a clay vessel to accuse the potter of injustice? We have no place to answer back to God in that way. Rather, we see in God's attributes, his love, his wisdom, his knowledge. And God has chosen to glorify himself by demonstrating both his wrath And his mercy. And that is the prerogative of God. And God has chosen to bring glory to himself, to demonstrate his attributes, to demonstrate all of them, including his wrath and his justice, and including his mercy and grace on these vessels that he has prepared beforehand. Now, those are the two objections. And we can go into more detail. But what I want to do tonight is make one point from Romans chapter 9. And the one point that I want to make for Romans chapter 9 is this. If our theology of God and of his control over human beings does not raise the same objections that are raised in Romans chapter 9, it's not fair, and how can we be responsible? If our theology doesn't raise those same objections or questions in other people's minds, then it's not a biblical theology. Because it's the biblical theology here of Jesus and of Paul and of the scriptures that raises these objections of it's not fair and how can we be responsible. It is the unpacking of how God works in humanity that brings these objections to the forefront and that Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 9. And so when somebody comes to us and says, well, your theology, how can can God be fair? How can God be just? And, and, And how can we be responsible? They're raising the exact same objections that the scriptural and the biblical theology presented here in Romans 9 raises. And so if your theology doesn't raise these same objections, then you can be sure it's not a biblical theology. So God... In His great wisdom, as I mentioned before, He has created us in such a way that we have choice and we have volition. Yet in God's amazing providence, as we act according to our desires, and as we are not coerced in how we make our decision in this life, we fulfill exactly what God has planned for us to do, which is so amazing. And you can see this in Isaiah 10 when, when God sends the Assyrian army. And they're, they're doing whatever's in their hearts to, to kill and pillage and destroy. And God says, they were an axe in my hand to bring judgment against Israel. And then God in turn judged them because it wasn't their intentions to fulfill God's plan. But they were acting out of the evil desires of their heart. And we see it in the gospel itself in Acts 2 and Acts 4. That through the evil actions and intentions of men, God's predetermined plan of crucifying Jesus Christ was accomplished. And so, if we deny that God works in this way, we're ripping the heart out of who God is. We're calling him an impotent God, and we're really ripping out of the heart of the gospel, because this is how God has worked in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do tonight as we finish is just look at some implications quickly. Four implications of this truth that God upholds and directs human history and humanity and individuals. The very first implication I want to mention here is humility. Humility. This truth should drive us to humility. So often when we consider a powerful God, uh, in, even in our own hearts and the people we witness around us, uh, our reaction is generally one of rebellion and resistance. Uh, we don't want a God who is that powerful. We want a God rather that we can wield to do our purposes and do our will and our bidding. But when we consider the God of the Scriptures who is all-powerful, It should melt away our resistance and rebellion and cause us to come before Him in humility, recognizing that we are creatures. We are creatures. And we are made for a purpose to glorify our God. And so it should drive us to worship and to humility. We cannot escape uh, certain things in our life. We cannot escape death. We cannot escape God's judgment. We cannot escape the fact that we are a creature. We can attempt to resist and deny these things, but we cannot escape from them. Even atheists must live in the world God has made. They can't run from God. And so we should be driven to humility, recognizing that God is God, that we are not, that he is the creator, that we are not, and that we are made for his glory. Now, I recognize that this message is so, so wonderful for those whose eyes have been opened to recognize the great uh, wonder that we have to be humble before our great God. But this is such an offensive message in our day and age. We must humble ourselves before our God. But yet, this is what the scripture would have us do. The second implication of this truth that God is providentially in control of human history and of humans themselves. Second truth is it's an anxiety killer. An anxiety killer. Jesus says in, Ma- in Matthew six twenty seven that anxiety, worrying about tomorrow, can't add a single hour to your life. And so as we consider this truth, we must ask ourselves, do I worry? Do you worry? Are you someone who, who, is, um, who worries a lot? And as we look at these texts, do, n- do you not now see... Or are you not now reminded that God is in control of every single detail of your life and that he's all wise and he's all knowing uh, and he's all powerful and he's all loving? Do you recognize that God cares for you and that even the difficulties of life are for your good? Does that command in James where it says, count it all joy when various trials and difficulties confront you? Does that seem like completely otherworldly, like nobody does that? Okay, we all grumble and complain and groan, but we're supposed to count it all joy. We have this idea that God is in control of everything, even trials. And so we count it joy because God cares for us and he sustains us. And even in those trials, he promises to be with us. And he promises to use them for our good. Now, if, if those promises, like in Romans 8 that we looked at this morning, and this command to count it all joy, if those seem completely foreign to us, then we really need to delve into these scriptures and drink deeply at the well of God's providence to understand his great control over all things, to uproot anxiety. The third implication is our obedience and holiness. Our obedience and holiness. Now, how does obedience and holiness relate to God's providential oversight of us? This, this way, if God is working in you and directing and upholding you, are you not obliged to labor for the Lord? If he's, if he's giving you life and he's sustaining you even now, he's giving you the, the breath that you're breathing through your lungs, he's giving you the ability to think and to reason and to move and to live, do you not owe your allegiance and holiness and obedience to him? And we do. You can do nothing apart from God. So shouldn't you live for God with the grace that he has given you in order to uphold and sustain you? By reflecting on God's providence, it should encourage us to be active for him because he is active for us in every single moment. The last one I want to mention, last implication of God's providence in human affairs, it provides comfort in suffering and tragedy. Provides comfort in suffering and tragedy. It is our duty to recognize, based on what the scriptures are teaching us through God's providence and through texts like Romans A, it is our duty to recognize God's sovereign hand even in times of difficulty and adversity, no matter how hard that is. So that's difficult. It's difficult. But it's our duty to recognize God's sovereign hand in that. And that provides us comfort. It provides us hope. <clears throat> and it's so important for us to, to know these truths before um, we have great times of suffering or tragedy. It's um, so that way we can be sustained through those times by considering these truths. Now what I want to do, we, we dwelt on that, on that topic uh, in more detail this morning. So what I want to do is just read uh, lyrics of a song. And this song is called As Long As You Are Glorified. And there's two verses in the song I want to read to you. And just the response that the songwriter here has to God's sovereign hand over everything, whether that's for good or for bad. And I'll close with this. This is is what uh, he writes in these two verses. It says this. Shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine yet grumble in days of rain. Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow, then doubt? Are you good only when I prosper, and true only when I'm filled? Are you king only when I'm carefree, and God only when I'm well? You are good when I'm poor and needy. You are true when I'm parched and dry. You still reign in the deepest valley. You're still God in the darkest night. Amen. Let's pray.